Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we'll talk with Patrick Brown, a fellow here at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Patrick's work focuses on developing a robust pro-family economic agenda, policy that supports families as the cornerstone of a healthy and flourishing society. Prior to joining EPPC, Patrick served as a senior policy advisor to Congress's Joint Economic Committee, where he published reports on childcare affordability and education policy, as well as policy work for the Social Capital Project. Patrick writes and speaks about pro-family tax policy, welfare reform, and pro-life advocacy. He's also a contributing editor to American Compass. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So we we talk a lot, um, and rightly so, I think, as pro-lifers about the need to regulate abortion, to, uh, you know, have abortion laws and and pro-life laws that protect the unborn child. Uh, but now, especially as we're headed into a post-Roe v. Wade America, thank thank the Lord, uh, we have to address the demand for abortion too, right? Because abortion is never going to go away until we make it um, both illegal and unthinkable or, or um, you know, help people not want abortion, right? So w- what are some of the underlying causes in your view that, that make mothers think they need abortion? Well, that's a big question. And obviously it depends on the profile of the mom who's um, you know, facing uh, oftentimes an unexpected pregnancy. Um, for a lot of moms who are in that situation, they tend to be on the sort of lower income side of the of the income distribution. Uh, and, and a lot of them already have kids at home or uh, uh, maybe in sort of uh, a series of relationships and have you know, uh, sort of an unstable family life. And so they feel like they're just not economically ready to have another child uh, and, and feel that pressure. And that's something that I think you would hope that both conservatives and progressives would agree that no woman should feel economically pressured into choosing abortion because that's something that we can uh, address through better policy and i think we can you know we're seeing some creative ideas on the right uh and and, and some willingness from some on the left to, to talk about that and then and then obviously there's some women who um you know feel like they need to choose abortion because it could impact their education or, or their career or uh some other things and i think you know th- those are a little harder to address with with policy because I think it's a cultural change. But talking about the barriers that that you know, face women in the workforce that that make it harder for for women who are her moms to complete their education or, or complete their college degree, those things I think institutions and, and corporations and colleges should be thinking about making it as easy as possible for moms who want to to be able to to juggle those two things. Um, and, and and obviously sort of preventing, you know, active, active discrimination against pregnant women, it would be another part of that. But I think we have to think about those two sort of being being um, two of the big reasons why women would feel pressured into choosing abortion and how we can be thinking about addressing that through policy. That's a, a really helpful distinction you made between kind of um, those at the uh, bottom end of the kind of income distribution um uh, a scale and those, you know, more at the top end. That like the reasons why someone who's concerned about, you know, how this is going to impact, you know, my graduate degree or my clerkship or my partnership or you know the next kind of ladder in the career, um, uh, I guess the next you know step in the career ladder that I'm climbing. That those sets of reasons are radically different um, than the reasons for someone who just you know feels economically constrained 
or um, uh, socially constrained, right? If you, you mentioned sometimes it's, you know, they, they already have other kids at home, but with, you know, multiple different fathers and without any of those fathers actually committing uh, to them. Um, and to my mind, that, that strikes me that it's actually going to be a, um, uh, on the kind of the perceived need, the perceived demand side of abortion, a response that will both require, um, you know, economic policy addressing the material side of that um, perceived need, but also an ideological side, right? Bad understandings of freedom and of flourishing and aut on autonomy um, and, you know, how you find self-worth that might be influencing people more at the top end of that um, distribution scale. And so for just for a minute, sticking with the lower end, because um, I think there it's it's interesting that frequently you see in the self-reports of, um, of mothers who have chosen abortion that they didn't want to abort. They did not want to shout their abortion. They did not perceive it as liberating or freeing or as a triumph. They actually felt it as a defeat. And that had they had the economic and social resources, they actually would have preferred to have chosen life, to have brought their child into the world. So could you say a little bit about you know, what you think policy can do in this area, um, including some discussion of, you know, there, there are actually some interesting innovations happening on the right currently. Um, could you help listeners know, you know, what's going on on the right and, and what you think um, some effective policies could be to address some of those um, uh, demand side questions? Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right that, you know, there's, there's some, you know, heartbreaking reporting out in, in, you know, left-leaning outlets about women who, go into Planned Parenthood and, um, uh, you know, sort of have, you know, say goodbye to their, their child who they see on, on the screen, um, and, and sort of apologize for having to do this because they feel like they just can't, um, you know, make it happen. Uh, and, and that's just, that should break your heart no matter where you come from on this issue. And so I, I, I do think that there is, um, you know, as you say, some, some, this has spurred a lot of creative thinking, um, that's already been going on on the right, uh, obviously, but, but I think now that we're, we're playing with live ammunition, so to speak, um, you know, we're seeing Republican senators talking about, uh, you know, supporting, uh, moms, you know, th uh, the idea of advancing the child tax credit, even in, during pregnancy is something that's been talked about for a couple of years and, and was included in, the latest version of Senator Romney's uh, plan that would sort of consolidate the uh, the tangle of uh, tax credits and deductions and different things aimed at, at low income populations and, and just funnel them into one consistent monthly benefit aimed at, at families and, and and starting that four months before childbirth um, helps uh, you know get support uh, to moms when it's needed you know having a child could be an, an expensive proposition so um, that's that's definitely something that should be on the table. Um, you know, recently we've seen uh, Senator Langford of Oklahoma talking about uh, making child support uh, payable uh, from from conception, you know, through pregnancy, which I think is really creative. And, and, and you know, you got to kind of work out the kinks in, in times when when there is a disputed uh, paternity and that sort of thing. But the idea is right because we're recognizing that you know when um, you know when a mom has had uh, has conceived a child. Um, she now has a claim on on the resources of, of society in a, in a sense, right? Because we're you know in in this sort of pro pre Dobbs era under the Roe regime, um, you know you you know you could sort of be in the position of saying, well, we you know we you know if you were a, if you were a sort of limited government type, you could say, well, we certainly hope that the woman doesn't choose abortion, but but that option is available on the table. 
Um, and now that it's not, I think I think there's these growing conversations uh, around, you know, uh, certainly maternal health and 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 the you know the the prenatal postnatal period, but also just the the you know once you have the child, those expenses don't go away, right? It's it's uh, thinking about parenthood across uh, you know those years of of, of uh, raising a kid, and I think plans like what Senator Romney proposed, Senator Rubio, others on the right, those are thinking about. Uh, sort of the whole of family life in a in a really helpful way. Yeah, that's that, that's really helpful, Patrick. And um, I want to ask a, a, a short follow up question, although it may require a long answer. But um, how do you think about and, and and how do you encourage our listeners to think about some of the trade offs and some of the tensions between kind of like short term immediate needs um, of mothers versus, you know, the long-term um, cultural reform that that we need. And, and what I have in mind here is that, you know, things that you mentioned, extending the child tax credit for the nine months of pregnancy, um, beefing up um, uh, uh, paternity payments to, to make sure that fathers are, 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 are paying their fair share, um, you know, various like immediate tangible economic supports um, of mothers who are bearing children versus what we know is the best long-term protector of babies, which is marriage, right? Getting men and women to actually commit to each other to then commit to the child and work, right? Having at least one person within the marital community, within the family, you know, seriously engaged in the workforce. And, you know, and those are two of the lessons that um, conservatives have learned from the welfare reform of the 1990s is that, you know, we need to promote marriage and we need to promote work. We don't want to have people who are permanently long-term dependent on a safety net, right? The safety net is supposed to be a net that then eventually gets people back into the workforce. How do you think about those trade-offs? Because I mean, the, the flip side of this is in several states right now, um, babies can no longer be killed in the womb. And that means there are mothers right now who need you know, immediate assistance, but we don't want that immediate assistance to come at the expense of perpetuating marital breakdown and people who are you know, forever alienated from the workforce. So, so how do you think about that? How do we think about that? Uh, how are people on the right thinking about that? Romney, Rubio, others who are trying to uh, craft policy in this space? Yeah, no, I think that's that's the central question for what conservative family policy should look like going forward. And I think thinking about it in the sort of two tracks is helpful to me, right? So, so we're thinking about, you know, like I said, prenatal care, uh, you know, expanding Medicaid coverage for up to a year postpartum, like those kind of things are really uh, focused on the act of giving birth and and delivering a healthy baby, making sure mom and, and baby are, are doing okay and, and have the resources they need to be to have a good start in life. And and I think I'm a little less worried there about some of the perverse incentives because you know babies are good and and we have a very low birth rate in this country. There's a lot of reason to to want to invest in reducing maternal mortality and all that sort of stuff. So when you're talking about those those early months of childhood, you know uh, six months, a few years, something like that, I think there we we need to take our foot off the brakes a little bit and say, okay, these these moms are in need of assistance. Uh, let, let's make sure that what they need and and an unconditional uh, child benefit for the first year of life or something like that. Like th those discussions should be on the table. But you're right that there are long-term incentives that are at play. And, and, and you know, certainly, you know, the, the conversations around reform and just the philosophical principles of, of uh, conservatives and going back for decades, stress the importance of, of work and marriage and the institutions of civil society. And so that's where I think, you know, our you know, get, kind of get off the wrong path where they, where they, you know, 
Well, if you were really pro-life, you would, you know, sign on to Build Back Better or, you know, a sort of Bernie Sanders Scandinavian welfare state. And and I think that's wrong. I, you, you don't have to give up your, your conservative principles to respond to the needs of families. And we have to be treating these trade-offs, you know, reforming things in a way that, that doesn't penalize marriage uh, by any means and, and maybe even encouraging it, but finding ways to make family life more affordable that, that to your point, don't create a culture of dependency and doesn't crowd out civil society. And I think there are, you know, the, the, the plans that are being proposed on the right, for the most part, are serious attempts to recognize that parents bear a financial cost uh, and they, they, they bear that cost individually, right? It's expensive to, to, to uh, you know, pay for food and clothing and shelter and all that stuff for your kid, but the, the benefits accrue to society because 18 or 22 or, or however many years down the road, that kid now becomes a, a you know, a taxpaying adult and, and contributing uh, to society uh, and, and, you know, creating jobs and doing whatever. And so those benefits are, are really social benefits that, that the parent doesn't, you know, in our, in our, in our uh, post social security system, uh, it doesn't doesn't you know, is is not your safety net is not your child anymore. Your your, your safety net is, is sort of society uh, writ large. And so, if we want to think about sort of recognizing that those expenses and that that time and effort and stuff that the parents put into their kid, we need to be thinking about that differently. And, and so, anyway, all, all that is to say, there are definitely trade offs at play. But you, you it doesn't mean you just throw away all these concerns because oh, kids are in need. Um, there's, you know, reforming uh, the the tax code and that sort of thing to make sure that they're at least neutral towards marriage would be a huge start. And I think that's that's why I'm, I'm particularly excited about the Romney plan. But there's there's others out there that are worth considering as well. Well, that response is really helpful and, and kind of predicts our our last question or um, sort of set of questions. Almost the the first, um, I'll try to ask it as two. But basically, I, I want to ask where you sort of how you would situate your vision of a good family policy, a family policy that helps to decrease demand for abortion between the sort of uh, left and right, on the left and right spectrum, right? So can you say a bit about um, the family policy you think is effective or would find most desirable? Contrast that with the supposedly pro-family policies that the progressives want, and you reference that a bit. And then what would you say, secondly, to conservatives who are concerned about the government taking on a role that doesn't belong to the government or, um, you know, perhaps being ineffective or wasteful in an effort to help? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think the uh, it's, it's important to think about pro-family policy is, is at some point it's going to require more resources and, and, and you know, spending more on, on a child tax credit can be offset by repealing some of these other tax deductions and, and uh, other provisions that I think can you can do it in a more you know, fiscally sustainable way than than just sort of spending money out at the wazoo, especially in an era of nine percent inflation. Uh, but there's also going to be circumstances in which pro-family policy means less uh, government resources or, or 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 allowing the market to work in a better way. And I think of housing as being a perfect example of this, where we sort of distorted the housing market with a lot of environmental regulations and uh, overly rigorous zoning. And, and these things drive up the cost of housing for, for parents and for families. And figuring out a way to help that market work better and decreasing the cost of housing is, is in a lot of cases, going to look like 
uh, you know, less government intervention and less distortions. And so it's not a one size fits all approach. Uh, you know, there's going to be times where, where you're going to want to spend more. Sometimes you're going to spend differently. Sometimes you're going to spend less, but throughout it all, the, the, I think the conservative approach to family policy is saying what's going to be best for families. Uh, and that's not the same as the, the less prescription for family policy, which tends to, I think, to look at families on this sort of individual level and say, okay, well, how can we, um, help the individuals who are in this family thrive, and and that's going to look more like, uh, you know, government, uh, you know, provision or you know, subsidized daycare to help sure to help make sure that parents can get back into the labor force as soon as possible. Uh, that's going to look like uh, you're really framing our our child benefit around, um, you know, ending child poverty and, and making sure it's going to all families, especially you know, including those without a worker, not thinking about the long term consequences that can have. On, on family life and the dependency that Ryan was talking about earlier. So I think, you know, from my perspective, it's important to think about the family as a unit, as a social unit, as an economic unit, and and you know, devote resources to making sure that unit can stay self-sustainable uh, and, and in, a, in a community uh, of other like-minded families and, and, and um, not crowding it out with, with uh, big government spending. And I think our, our, uh, the vision from the left just doesn't care about those sort of things and just thinks about families, just thinks about families as sort of a, a constellation of, of individuals that happen to live together. And I think that's, that's a huge philosophical difference that distinguishes the right or the left, I think. Yeah, that's a really helpful clarification. And I know I, I certainly come down on the more conservative end of the spectrum. And so I can be very wary of government involvement, um, but I think it's important to, to look for a balance here where the goal is always what's most effective and what's actually helpful to families, um, whether that's more or less government or local government or whatever the case might be. Um, so thanks so much for your time today, Patrick. I really appreciate uh, you lending your wisdom to this important issue. Thanks, guys. Congrats on the book. Today, we'll talk with Henry Olson, a senior fellow here at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Henry offers regular writing and commentary on American politics, with a particular focus on how America's political order is being upended by populist challenges from both the left and the right. He's an opinion columnist for The Washington Post, where his writing focuses on politics, populism, foreign affairs, and American conservative thought. His writing has appeared in many publications, including The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, National Review, The Guardian, and The Weekly Standard. Henry, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start out with, a, I think, the big ticket question here um, in the wake of, of Roe v. Wade having been overturned. Uh, the Democratic Party appears convinced and abortion advocates appear convinced that abortion and Roe having been overturned is not only a winning issue for them in the midterms, but perhaps their saving grace, the issue that's going to you know, rescue them from a, a totally horrible midterms uh, result. What do you have to say to that? You know, I, I understand why they want to think that. Polls show that a uh, majority of Americans uh, support abortion through the first trimester. And they know that in many swing areas that that percentage is likely higher, you know, closer to 60%. So you'd want to run on a 60% issue. They're also looking at the worst presidential job approval rating in modern history. Uh, with respect to President Biden, so they're desperate for anything to change the conversation. That said, there is no evidence thus far that abortion is going to save their political bacon. Voters continually reference in, uh, some form of concern about rising prices, inflation, or the economy, depending on the wording of the poll, and 
that rises precipitously uh, when independents versus Democrats. I don't think it's deniable that this helped them motivate voters and their donors. Uh, that, in some sense, could help them negate the normal Republican turnout advantage, which accrues to any party that's in the outs during a midterm election. But as far as being a persuasive message to independents, the evidence so far says it simply isn't working. Henry, so what you just said there about kind of the the saliency of the issue, like, you know, where do voters actually rank um, the abortion issue in their list of priorities with things like gas prices, inflation, um, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what about also because you had mentioned that, um, you know, the, the Democrats hope that this could be a, a boon for them um, because, you know, voters seem to be conflicted about abortion when it comes to like early abortions, you know, first trimester or something like that. But the policies that the Democrats are actually pushing, uh, if you, you look at what they're currently doing on Capitol Hill, you know, throughout, throughout all nine months of pregnancy, you know, at the taxpayer's expense, how does that um, intersect with the public uh, opinion polling, but then also with voters? I mean, how, do, how does the voter who might be, um, you know, moderately pro-choice, you know, open to European-style abortion laws, how do they react when they see what um, Pelosi and AOC and others are proposing on abortion? So the problem with abortion is that it cuts both ways. Republicans and independents are uh, different in how they approach this. You know, Republicans are going to vote Republican pretty much regardless of the issue on abortion, whether they're pro-choice or not. The same is true, unfortunately, for the pro-life side for Democrats, that even pro-life Democrats are highly likely to vote Democratic in the midterm. So then the question is, will independents care? Right now, they don't. And that it goes for the Democratic arguments, uh, talking about what they call you know, the pro-choice side, but it will also go for the Republican arguments talking about the extremism of the Democrats' proposal. Right now, what that message is, is to the extent somebody cares about abortion, who is an independent, it gives Republicans something to say that takes it off the table and refocuses the independents' mind on to things like inflation. But it's unlikely to be a vote determiner with independence because as of now, they simply do not prioritize abortion policy one way or another, even though they do agree with pro-life positions when it comes to pregnancy, terminating a pregnancy after the first trimester. Okay, that's that's very interesting and, and clarifying. And um, to, to kind of focus in on that, that last point in particular, um, could you speak a little bit to um, polling in particular and kind of what policies your sense is that Republican voters would find most attractive, both at the, the state level and the national level when it comes to abortion? Because polling is basically, a, I mean, it's impossible to track. It seems very, <laughs> like very scattered and it's just hard to, to piece together. So what's your sense of everything we've seen so far? Yeah, again, it, it, polling for Republicans tends to show uh, nationally, like a two to one or so margin for broadly pro-life, there still are a significant number of pro-choice Republican voters, although they are not Republican activists or leaders in most cases. Um, but in most Republican constituencies, the decided majority is pro-life and the activist vote, the people who vote in primaries are even more pro-life. 
what they will tend to support is uh, laws that will ban abortion either from conception or at the six-week mark, uh, with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. That attempts to not have those exceptions would not go down well with independent voters to the extent, of course, they're, they're prioritizing it. But it also is not favored by the vast majority of Republican voters. Uh, so if I were simply following the polls in a safe Republican constituency or a safe Republican state, you know, uh, depending on how safe it is and the exact contours, clearly you want to pass a ban on abortion. And the question is, do you want to pass a Texas-style ban or do you want to pass a uh, more restrictive measure that would uh, th that would deal with um, um, abortion uh, from the moment of conception? You now, there's no real consistent polling that I've seen on the question of things like morning-after pills or IUDs. Uh, which can be classified as abortifacents. So there, I think it would be wise for Republicans to provide carve-outs for that so that somebody can use a morning-after pill or not have to worry about contraception because that tends to be viewed a little bit differently, even if the effect on the fertilized egg is identical. Uh, but if you're in a safe Republican area, you can safely go ahead and support a pro-life uh, restriction measure, again, the exact contours of which depending on exactly the contours of your state. And, and Henry, um, your, your answer to Zan there largely focused on um, abortion restrictions um, or, or better phrased protections for uh, the unborn against um, uh, the violence of abortion. How should we also think about um, the realignment that's taking place on the right with things like family policy, um, supports uh, for mothers carrying um, babies in the womb. Um, what's your um, your sense, both, you know, what, what does the current public opinion show on this? But then also, you know, what's your sense of, you know, where the conservative movement should go um, on issues like this? Yeah, yeah, in part because so many, uh, so much of the polling has been focusing uh, for years on the core questions around Roe. Uh, there's very little polling on you know, what I would call the next step question. Um, I think what, so here I'm going to be speaking more in terms of instinct and personal feelings than uh, on particular data points. Uh, there is significant enthusiasm among elements of the pro-life constituency for measures to encourage and ex uh, protect uh, a woman's ability to not just bear, but raise uh, a child. Um, and that's often going to require some form of government action, uh, whether it is expanding uh, just as little as expanding eligibility for child tax credits for a pregnant woman. So that if we say that life starts in the womb, then you get your $2,000 tax credit for a child that you're carrying to term. The same would be true with respect to eligibility for various maternal health programs. I think that would be the smart thing to do. I think it's both compassionate and just, and I think it is a way to support life. Uh, there will be people within the pro-life movement who will take more of a traditional anti-government view and say, no, this is the realm of the private sector. This is the realm of the charitable sector. 
I think that's the wrong argument. I can't make an argument from data because I don't have a political argument for data, but I think it's the wrong argument uh, as a matter of justice. And I also think, I suspect that the data will bear out my instincts uh, once we finally have polling that addresses the next step of life after Rome. And, and Henry, let me ask you a follow-up to that. Um, you know, we're recording this ahead of time. I don't know when this episode will air, but today Axios, you know, reported on a new poll that I think they had conducted, or at least they were reporting on somebody's poll, um, about how the GOP is becoming a more multi-ethnic working class party. You know, many things that you've advocated for uh, in your own scholarship, in your own writing. And then the very last line of the Axio piece uh, is this. It says, quote, the bottom line the GOP is trading soccer moms for Walmart dads. Do you have any reaction to that? Is that what you see going on? Does that capture something meaningful? How does that intersect with um, public policy after Roe? Yeah, you know, the, the Republican Party, is, as you know, Ryan, this is something I've been calling for for 12 years. That, uh, uh, it was lonely out there for a while, and now uh, everyone seems to have discovered it. As the, the working class people vote, they tend to be more conservative than upper class uh, people in modern America. And maybe a conservative party might want to pursue conservative voters. Who knew? Um, <laughs> so it is happening. It's not just happening here. It's happening worldwide as people who are doing well economically start to vote on their culture, uh, particularly when they have a center left that doesn't threaten socialism. Uh, as the center left increasingly has been moving away from much to the anger of their left. Um, so what I think is happening is not just a trading, you know, Whole Foods moms for Walmart dads, but they're getting Walmart moms and they're getting dollars. The other thing is Walmart is a little bit above the stores where some of these people shop. You know, you go into working class communities, you're not going to find Walmart. You're going to find a dollar store. OK, uh, real bargain basement places um, that's going to require a sea change in attitudes across the board. We're seeing this in Britain where uh, they're debating the successor to Boris Johnson and all these people are competing to out tax cut each other, seemingly oblivious to the fact that the very policies that they are advocating for were the reasons why their voters in working class Britain didn't vote for them for 30 years. So a, a life after Roe and a move to a working class party is going to require a limited but targeted use of government action across the board. And I think in that sense, pro-life advocates who are arguing for compassion and action for the mother uh, are going to find common cause with people who will say, yeah, we need to have limited and targeted action for people who are hurt by automation and globalization and by uh, cheap foreign imports and by a failing education system. The working class has always wanted opportunity through the private sector and security through the public sector. A Republican party that doesn't speak to both is one that will not be securely anchored in the working class. So if I could follow up to that a bit, something I think we hear a lot from from pro-life groups and national pro-life groups in particular is um, abortion is a winning issue for Republicans. Being pro-life is a, a winning position and Republican politicians, particularly at the national level, are too shy about it. They have this fear that it's a losing issue and so they don't want to talk about it. Um, is your sense that that argument is correct or mostly correct or where do you come down on that? You know, 
My view is that within a Republican primary, uh, in any place that a Republican can win, pro-life is a winning issue. Uh, I don't know people who are campaigning for office this year in congressional seats for governor, for Senate, who are not pro-life in some way. Now, you can talk about the specifics of their policies and say, well, they're not pro-life enough, but it's very rare to find a pro-choice politician winning a Republican primary. The exception that proves the rule is Colorado Senate race recently, where a pro-choice person uh, won the primary for Senate. Uh, he was also running against a more extreme conservative rather than a mainstream uh, conservative. And you know, had that not been the case, it could very well be that the mainstream pro-life conservative would have won that primary. So in a Republican electorate, pro-life is a winner. Um, in a broader electorate, again, you get to the question that there has yet to be any evidence that pro-life is a motivating issue for swing voters that people who care about abortion, there are people who have switched because of abortion, people who used to be Republicans and maybe still wish they are or could be Republicans, but have said, I can no longer be a Republican because it's a pro-life party, and people who are Democrats who have switched. But the fact is they have switched, and that now makes it a partisan issue. In the middle, you can safely take a pro-life position depending on the nature of your constituency and state. You know, I would not if I were running in a suburban district in Philadelphia, uh, I would not, as a pure political consultancy matter, advocate banning abortion after 15 weeks because that's the majority of your constituents are there. But you can safely say that. And the farther away you get from some of these educated suburbs, the more aggressively pro-life you can be. It's simply not a saliency issue uh, among many swing voters, uh, but you'd still be wise to adapt to your terrain. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. And I know I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, well, being fully pro-life is the thing to do. And of course, I'm sure all three of us are there. But at a certain point, we, we live in the governmental system we live in and we have to get the best policy we can that's that's prudent and actually possible, right? We can't just go from totally abortion on demand everywhere to abortion banned totally everywhere by snapping our fingers. Um, we have to get there by seeing where voters are and trying to convince people as much as we can, meeting them where they are and then, and then getting them to be more pro-life over time. Um, so that's very helpful perspective. Yeah, that's exactly partly what I've been writing about is that overturning Roe in hindsight will be seen as the easy part. And I know that's an absurd thing to say because it took us 50 years to overturn Roe. But the fact is the majority of American public opinion says that life within the womb prior to the first trimester does not deserve legal protection. That they do not see the unborn child at that state is sufficiently human to demand the protection of the law. That opinion can change. It was different 60 years ago or 70 years ago, but that's the battle that pro-lifers need to fight. We can ban abortion extensively throughout the nation, not simply in the places where we're already a majority, only when we change public opinion in that way. And that's the real battle changing public opinion about the status, the legal status, and the human status of the fertilized egg that turns into a child between conception and the first 13, 14 weeks of pregnancy. When we win that battle, we will win nationwide. And it won't be from a national ban, it'll be from 50 state bans. But until we win that battle, uh, it will always be a case of carving out enclaves and doing what we can. 
you know, we, we didn't pay you to say that, but that is like the perfect um, plug. I mean, the reason that Alexandra and I wrote this book uh, was precisely to shape the public opinion that we, we recognize that, um, you know, as you said, overturning Roe is going to be um, looked at as the easy part because now with Roe out of the way, we actually need to persuade people in all 50 states about the truth of the unborn child in the womb and not just the unborn child at 20 weeks, which you know clearly looks human on ultrasound, but the unborn child um, one day into existence, which you know doesn't quote look human, but that's exactly what a human being looks like when it's one day old. Um, but you know it's going to take a lot of persuasion. We're in the persuasion business uh, right now, um, and so so I want to ask you, what are the pitfalls that you think we should avoid? Uh, what's your advice to um, to you know leaders of the pro life movement? to office holders, to office seekers, to kind of conservative um, intelligentsia, what should we be wary of um, in terms of mistakes we could make that would set us back, you know, possibly setting us back decades? Yeah, well, first of all, don't be overly extreme, you know, which is don't uh, make demands that are impossible to fulfill to make yourself feel good. And that things like you know, anybody who files a bill in the House of Representatives asking for a national ban on abortion is asking to re-energize a media to focus on the issue that we don't want to focus on. Um, asking and demanding for things that are not prudent in your jurisdiction at this time are set the movement back, even if you think you're moving it forward. So Florida, Florida is a is a place where 15 weeks is probably the best we can do right now, even though Republicans have controlled the area. You know, I don't think public opinion in Florida would support a Texas-style bill. So don't demand one. Um, then you get the question of thinking outside the box, which is we should be thinking about things of how can we use power to increase knowledge about the uh, biology of, of embryology. You know, is that... I would suspect that most people are startlingly unaware of how human the unborn child is from very early. You know, you often hear from the pro-choice side uh, or, the, or the abortion rights side, oh, you know, that's just a electrical, uh, you know, it's electrical charges at the six week. It's not a heartbeat. Well, go on any sort of medical embryology website or, you know, I haven't looked in one, like the Mayo Clinic or something. They don't say electrical charges. They say heartbeat. Okay. Maybe we should be talking about inserting that into sex education curricula so that when 13-year-olds or 12-year-olds or 11-year-olds, whenever it starts, I think it's, I think I had sex ed when I was 11, you know, and they're learning about the basics of sexual reproduction. They should also learn about the basics of fetal development. What's wrong with that? It's science. But there's a lot of ways to come at it. And that's before Roe was gone, I would always say of heartbeat bills, look, they can't actually ever be put in place in a, a Roe America, Roe v. Wade America. But they're a great learning bill, right? Because most people actually don't know that the unborn child has a heartbeat at six weeks, which you would hope they do, but they don't know that. And their minds actually, t at least from the polls I saw, changed about abortion once they learned that. Uh, so I think those types of messaging bills certainly um, have a role to play. But uh, thank you so much for your, your time today, Henry, for all your insights. You have uh, so much to share. We're grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. 
This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative. <laughs>